you know what gets on their nerves and grinds their gears. So like you should stop doing it if we know each other better. But there's this thing that happens where we just kind of slowly grow toward kind of acting a little bit more like brother and sister. And I think that the marriage that you want, I think the marriage that you want is not to look back on your courtship or your newlywed life and say, boy, those were the best days in our marriage. I think the marriage you want is to look at your golden years and say, those were the sweetest and the best days. Now, that takes some work because marriage is unlike almost any other thing else in life. Almost everything else in life has an ending point or a transition point. An ending point or a transition point. So think about it like this. If you are a student and some of our students are here and you remember being in grade school or middle school or like ninth grade and you've been in school a long time, but you still got a long time to go and it feels like it will never end. Any, any students here know that feeling? Like I'm never going to get out, right? And we felt that way too. And it feels that way. But all of a sudden you graduate from high school and, and maybe you're a student a little longer and you go to college or perhaps you go to to a grad degree, get a graduate degree after college, but there comes a time that you graduate from high school or college or a graduate degree and it just ends and you're never a student ever again and you never walk in a classroom ever again. Hallelujah. Some of you are always waiting for it, right? And it just ends and this season of your life that felt like it would last forever and you'd always be a student and it just ends. Parenting doesn't have an ending point, but has some huge transition points. And you're a young parent and you feel like you are going to be changing diapers forever. And all of a sudden the last one's out of diapers and they can feed themselves and you transition and, and getting, a parent, getting to be a parent. There's, there's some new things that are a little bit more fun then. And then they graduate from high school or they graduate from college or they get a job and move out and get off the insurance. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, Jesus. Come on now. Let's come on right? Get off the insurance. And then it is done. Uh, just like we sang done, done, right? It's done. It's done. And you're still a parent. You still love them. You still have a relationship, but that's a huge transition point because being a parent will look very differently. It'll have much different impact financially. And the influence you have is different. Even they're not in your home. You don't control them. And there's a huge transition. And you never, you never go back, right, to, to parenting them the way that you did when they were 10 or 12 or 14 years old. Your job's got both of these, our careers. Some of you have made transitions in your career. You've gone from one career and you've transitioned to a completely different career. Or you've transitioned from job to job or from office to office or from company to company. And then at the end, 40, 45 years, they have a cake for you and you retire and it's over and you actually end this huge 40, 45 year chunk of your life that felt like it would last forever actually comes to an end and you never set the alarm to go to work ever again. Amen. Some of you, yeah, some of you, yeah, all, all, we're, we're jealous of all the retired people, right? That it's a good, good feeling. It's like my daddy always says when I ask him if he wants to do something or something, he always says, let me check my calendar. Yep, I'm free. Um, because he's retired. But marriage isn't like either one of these. In fact, marriage doesn't have an ending point or transition point. Marriage just has one point. 
till death do us part. And there's only one way to fulfill that vow. When one of you is holding the other's hand, and hopefully you live many, many years, and one of you leaves this life to go to the next, and you say, we did it. We did it, right? So, to, so we've got to think about marriage different than we think about every other thing in life because it doesn't have this transition point. It doesn't have an ending point. It is this only thing kind of in our lives, not like our careers, not like education, uh, not like even parenting, that it really grows the whole way. So I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 in a little book a little section of this book that he wrote gives some great solutions. And really part of this series has been us trying to help you have some solutions because we're for you and we're for marriages. So one of the ways that we're wrapping this series in a bow isn't just today, it's the last day of this series, but this Friday night we've got a couple's date night that we want to invite uh, couples that are dating, that are very serious in dating, or if you're engaged or if you're married at any point, if you're married with no kids, married with young kids, married with teenagers, empty nester, never had kids, whatever, been married two years or 40 years, we want you to come be a part of that. 5.30, we're going to have some appetizers, some, some kind of some fun times together. You'll get to meet some other couples, and we're going to send you off on a great date with some questions and conversation starters to maybe have a deeper date than you've had in some while. In some while. But... So we hope you'll be a part of that. And that's really a solution for you growing closer in marriage. Paul's solution, I think, is really simple in 1 Corinthians. It was love. Love. We just celebrated that this week, right? Valentine's. It's all about love. But love, can we just admit, is a little bit of an overused word. It's so overused, we're not even sure what it means anymore. Right? I love Pop-Tarts. Okay, I think the top of the food pyramid is brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts. Yeah, amen, amen. And that's my Sunday morning treat. I typically only eat them on Sunday mornings. That's what, I, that's what I eat before I preach. That's my breakfast on Sunday mornings. Listen, if I wake up, I got to watch my 11-year-old because he will clean out the pantry because he likes them like I do. If, if they're not brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts in the pantry, Mountaintop's not going to have a good sermon that morning. I just want you to know, I got to have them. So we keep it stocked. I love this. So, I mean, we use that word love. I love music and I love movies and I love trucks and I love comfortable shoes. The older I get, the more I love comfortable shoes. I love spending time with my children. Sometimes I love not spending time with my children, Right? You use that word love. What does it love mean? Does it, does the, what I love, how I love pop tarts or how I love music or how I love sports mean the same thing as when I say I love my mama or I love my daddy or I love my wife? What does, what does this love mean? It's a loaded word. And first Corinthians 13 is a chapter in the Bible entirely dedicated to love. Sometimes it's called the love chapter. It's a bit of a cliche almost. I mean, it's one of those passages that even transcends the church. That They sell it on little wood things at Hobby Lobby, and your grandma probably cross-stitched one. You might even have in your, uh, in your guest bathroom. It's just kind of one of those things. We print it on pillows and put it in the living room. Love is patient. Love is kind. We're going to dig through all of that. But what does it mean when it says love? Because is it Pop-Tart love? 
or some better kind of love. It's interesting that we use that same word to talk about cars or music or food or God or our spouse. But the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greeks actually had four different words for love because they recognized that there were different kinds of love. And I I was going to explain some of that to you, but I was watching the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. And there was an incredible commercial that just exemplified this that I wanted to share with you to help you understand what kind of love this scripture is talking about. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge, the kind you have for a grandparent or a brother. Third, there's eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different. It's the most admirable. It's called agape. Love as an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For 175 years, we've been helping people act on their love. So they can look back or look ahead and say, we got it right. We did good. Man, that'll preach, won't it? That's good stuff. I was like watching the Super Bowl and inspired. And that explains perfectly this passage because this scripture that we're going to read, you're going to see the word love over and over again. And every time we do, it's this word that you just saw. It's agape. It's this active love. In fact, the New Testament writers were the first to actually use the word agape as a noun. It was always a verb in Greek literature in, in works by Homer and Plato that always use it because it really is action. It's not just an ooey gooey emotional mushy gushy feeling. It's active. The scriptures m- most often define it as the active love of God for humanity in sending his son Jesus to die for the world. God didn't just look at humanity and say, I love you. He showed it in action by sending his son. And we are supposed to respond to God with agape love that not just with our words, but with action. So Paul in this scripture, he, there's this beautiful poetic passage that is kind of the famous part. That's the love is patient. Starts with love is patient. We're going to get dig in it in just a second, but we often miss the first three verses and the first three verses don't usually make it on the cross stitch. The first three verses are really important, though, because they have an incredible introduction and an incredible imagery about why love is important. So if you got your Bibles there open or you're using your phones, 1 Corinthians 13, and you can uh, also take one of our Bibles on the bookshelves when you leave. Listen to what it says in this introduction. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So no matter what I say, that's what it sounds like. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What Paul says is that love without action doesn't work. That if you say, honey, I love you, sweetie, you mean the world to me. Oh, you mean everything to me, but you don't back it up with action. It really doesn't matter what you say. Because your actions drown out whatever you're saying. And it doesn't sound like love. It's just annoying. In fact, there's a profound thought here that Paul says that what you do is louder than what you say. That's why agape love is essential in marriage. It doesn't matter what you say and it doesn't even matter the vows you took. What matters is if if you actually live into those vows for the rest of your life. What you do is louder than what you say. So then Paul spells out what this agape love actually looks like in action. And it's a beautiful poetic passage. You can apply it to any relationship And if you're single here today, you can think about how you relate to family or in the workplaces. But I want to look at it through the lens of marriage. And we're just going to walk through it because it's so beautiful. It says, love is patient. It's patient when there are socks left on the floor. It's patient when there are dishes left in the sink. It's patient when the trash doesn't get taken out. It's patient when the toilet seat gets left up. My wife was here at 930. I had to repeat that one for her. It just because um, she required, she has, she's a patient woman to live with me. It's patient when the house is messy and when the grass didn't get cut. It's patient. Love is patient. And love is kind. It speaks kindly to one another. Do, do you speak more kindly to your spouse or to a complete stranger? How do you answer the phone with your spouse? Hey, what do you want? But if you answer to a stranger, hello? Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It's, It's not envious when they do great in their career, when they're climbing the ladder, when they have a huge success. Love is a cheerleader. For your spouse. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't boast. Love doesn't have to say, well, I mean, didn't you notice I cleaned out the car? You going to say anything about the carpet I vacuumed? Did you notice? Boy, those hedges sure do look good. Wonder who trimmed those. You see, when we boast... The person that boasts is keeping score in their head of what they did and what their spouse didn't do, which makes no sense because if you're one flesh, if your spouse loses, you lose. You're not trimming the shrubs or cleaning the house or vacuuming or cleaning out the car for for them or for you. It's for both of you. You're on the same team. And love, the last one is, is not proud. It's not prideful. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. Well, that's tough. It's so hard to be humble. 
It's so hard to say I was wrong. Right? You can just admit that. It's so hard to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's it's funny uh, in... Emily and I moved into our, our new house a few months ago, and I don't know why. We just both kind of decided, like, hey, let's start something new in this house. We're going to make up our bed every day in this new house. New family tradition. I mean, the pillows and all. You know, like, we're going to make it look pretty. And, um, and we have done pretty doggone good at it. The Kind of our rule is whoever gets up last has to make up the bed. So I get up at 4 a.m. every day. Um <clears throat> That's not true. Most of the time she gets up and, and so, and, but I've been pretty good. She's been pretty good, but there's sometimes I forget or I'm in a hurry or sometimes I'll be planning to come back and do it. Um, and I'll go down to my basement office and, and she'll have done it when she, when she's our, and even though she was up before me and I've just tried to practice, but it's been humbling on just a simple, silly thing, like making up the bed. Like if I don't do it, I've just been really trying to practice and say, I'm sorry I didn't make up the bed today. Because I've learned that that kind of, that's, it's humbling to just say that, to say, you know what? I didn't measure up to the promise we made to one another, and I'm sorry. Um, because I figure if I can get better at that, at the little things, that it'll help me with the big things when I need to say I'm sorry. Paul Gazzoni says, it does not dishonor others. It means you never say anything that would dishonor them. You never talk about them behind their back. You never say anything that would make them feel less than. And men, I could, I could say a million things about pornography and one day I will teach on it more deeply. But in the simplest thing I could say today would just be it dishonors your spouse. And love doesn't dishonor. Love is not easily angered. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't, doesn't put yourself first. It's not selfish. It puts them first. It's not easily angered. It's not quick-tempered. It doesn't get angry at little things and complain about petty things. Because it's just, it's not easily angered. It's hard to make true agape love angry. And this is a big one in marriage. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's one of the worst things you can do in marriage, isn't it? That you're in an argument. Well, this is just like what you did back when. You're still thinking about that? You hadn't gotten over that? Well, this reminds me of just what you said to my mama. Like 10 years ago? Yeah. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love has a robust delete button and uses it graciously and liberally. And that's so important because I have news for you. You married a human and they are going to accumulate a record of wrongs. And the longer you live together, the longer the record's going to get because they're going to stay human. Love doesn't keep a record. Just every day, delete, 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 delete. We're going to start fresh every day. Now, I don't know, you may be here and you may not even be a church person or you may kind of be kind of new to church or you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, but can I just say this? I mean, you could say, I, I'm not sure about 
about Jesus, and you may even think that the Bible is a list of rules and regulations, and that's where you're unsure, but wouldn't your marriage just be better if you did this? Like, wouldn't your, maybe, I, what I hope this would open your eyes to see is if you're new to church, is that the Bible is not about what you shouldn't do. It is about a story of a God who wants what's best for you. And your marriage and your relationships will be better with agape, active love. So then Paul goes on in a good big one. He said, love does not delight in evil. It's just one concept in this verse, but rejoices in the truth. The truth. Agape love doesn't lie about how much it's spent at Target. Agape love doesn't lie about when an ex-girlfriend sends a Facebook message or an ex-boyfriend sends a Facebook message. Agape love tells the truth. Just tell the truth. Err on the side of truth with your spouse. Err on the side of truth. They don't want surprises because surprises are kind of like lies. Don't let them be surprised to look at Target on the bank statement. Don't let them be surprised that they heard you were talking to somebody at Starbucks because you ran into an ex-girlfriend there, an ex-boyfriend there. You just tell the truth. You, somebody, somebody from the opposite sex flirts with you at work. You tell the truth. You come home and say, I think somebody was coming on to me. You just tell the truth. I just decided a long time ago that when situations like that come up, that it was possible that someone was going to get offended by my actions and my response to that. And I just always decided it wasn't going to be my wife that got offended. It was going to be somebody else that got offended. So I don't care if, I mean, anything that happens, you just be honest. Just tell the truth. Truth builds trust. Truth builds trust. Truth builds trust. And they can't trust you if they don't believe that you're truthful with them. Tell the truth in all, even the little things. Err on the side of truth. And then the last part, he says, it always protects. Love protects your heart. It protects your spouse's heart. It always trusts. Do you trust your spouse? Now, I want to get personal for just a minute because I want to talk about your money. It's been interesting to me how some people can say they trust their spouse, but they don't really trust them with their money. Now, I want to say something very clear, so listen really closely. 2,000 years ago, when the scriptures were coming together and the New Testament was written, there were no checking accounts in the Bible, okay? So there's nowhere in the Bible that says you should have one checking account. But from Genesis to Jesus, it says that husband and wife become one flesh. And I've just never been able to figure out how you could be one flesh with two checking accounts. I've just never understood why you would need two checking accounts unless you had a plan B in case it didn't work out. When I marry a young couple and I, they do their ring ceremony and they put their ring, the vow that I make young couples take or any couple, if they're remarried or whatever it is, is to say, I give you this ring as a sign of my vow with all that I am and all that I have in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. With all that I have, I trust you. I give it to you. Love always trusts. 
Love always trusts and love always hopes. It always believes the best and it always perseveres. Love never, ever gives up. And then Paul has a mic drop moment at the end of it. He says, all this kind of love, I want to tell you something about this kind of love. Love never fails. This kind of love, this kind of agape love never fails. I mean, that's pretty, like never, ever that's a long time. It never fails because this love isn't just a language. It's not just saying I love you. This love is backed up by action. It's backed up by patience and kindness. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's got humility and it's not prideful. And it's got honor and not dishonor. And it's got selflessness. It's slow tempered. It's not quick to become angry. It's got a short memory. It's always truthful, always protective. It's trusting and hopeful and it has perseverance. That's the kind of love that never fails. And Paul says, if you will put those things into action, and here's what I believe for every single one of us. If you will embrace those in your marriage, a love that never fails makes a marriage that never fails. And I can just, I want to say this. I can stand on the word of God. I guarantee you, guarantee you that if you will put those kind of things daily into action, you will have a rock solid marriage that will not just stay married. You'll love each other and like each other and stand the test of time and last a lifetime. And that's what I so want for you. But can we be honest? This is not natural. That often I say I love my wife and I'm crazy about her, but my actions kind of sometimes... My actions don't always say what my words are saying. Anybody else in the room? Because, okay, let me just share some secrets with you. It's okay, they're your problems too. I'm kind of naturally selfish. Are you? I'm kind of naturally impatient. Are you? I'm kind of naturally prideful. Are you? Anybody else struggle with pride? Sometimes I'm kind of naturally mean. Like the first thing that comes to mind to say in my mind is something mean and not kind. Anybody else? Like all the things that we sometimes that we say that, this, that Paul says that we should do. Sometimes I just find that I'm totally the opposite. And I'm convinced that the only place that I can learn this agape love, this unfailing love is from the author of unfailing love. I am naturally everything that is the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm convinced that the only way that I could ever have a shot of loving my sweet sweet wife, Emily, and with this agape love, is from the example of the surrender and sacrifice and agape love of a Savior who died for me. And I am convinced, I am convinced that the marriage you want, the marriage you want can only happen if you will learn how to love from a God that so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to each and every one of us so that there would be less of me and more of him. And the table, this table, 
is a great place to start. We call it communion now or the Lord's Supper. But in the New Testament, in the early church, do you know what they called it? Agape feast. They're called love feast. And I want you to know that this isn't just a table where we learn how to love. This is a table where we are loved. This is a table where we come face to face with the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And I wanted to close up our series with this because we've been talking for the last three weeks about relationships in this, in this book. And this is a standard that none of us measure up to. None of us. So can I just say something to you uh, when it comes to relationships that I just want you to know? There's not a single person in this room that has done relationships 100% right. Not a single person. Not a single person sitting up, sitting in the chairs or a single person up here on stage. But 100% of the people in this room are welcome at the table to receive mercy and grace in reminders of bread and a cup of God's mercy and grace. I know what some of you think, Carter, you don't know my relationship history. Some of you have been divorced maybe a couple times, maybe three or four. And you've just wondered, does God really forgive you for that? And you feel so much shame for that and you wish you could have gotten it right and you're not sure what went wrong in some of them and some of them, you know what went wrong It was something that you did. I want you to know something. If that's you, you're welcome at this table. Some of you that are married, things are going well now, but before you were married together, you crossed some boundaries sexually and you just kind of got married and kind of forgot about it. But sometimes late at night, you think about it and you've never really made peace with God about it. And you've never really said, Lord, forgive me for that. I know we didn't start things right. And it's kind of like a dark cloud hanging over your life. I want you to know something. You're welcome at this table. Some of you single people here today, You've crossed some boundaries sexually. You've done some things in relationships that you're not proud of. And maybe even right now, you're crossing some lines that you know and you've compromised your values. And you feel so much shame because you know it's not right. But I want you to know something. You are welcome at this table. And some of you in this room have had affairs. And some of you might be in them right now. And you need to do some confessing to people to start seeing if you can work through reconciliation and trusting the healing power of God. But deep in your heart, there's so much guilt over it because you know it's wrong and you feel so dirty because of it. But I want you to know something. You are welcome at this table. And some of you in this room are addicted to pornography and it's starting to erode intimacy in your marriage and it's starting to erode your heart and your spirit and you feel feel so badly about it. You can't even hardly talk about it. You might have not even ever talked to anyone about it, but today is a day for you to begin getting some help. But I want you to know before you do that, you're welcome at this table. 
And some of you say, well, Carter, you, you don't know what I've done. God knows what you've done. And he loves you anyway. Because it's not about you and that you got it right. Because this isn't your table and it's not my table and it's not even Mountaintop's table. This is the Lord's table. And if you confess your sins to him and come and say, Jesus, I, you are Lord of my life and I want you and I need your grace, then you are welcome at this place. Because this bread isn't just bread. It's a reminder that the body of Christ was broken for you so that you could come to the table. And this isn't just a cup. And it's not just juice. It's a reminder that his blood was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's a reminder that you are loved with an agape, active love. This is a great...